Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special Drive Nation podcast, because today it's not just Dan and me talking nonsense about cars. Uh, I'm actually here with an extremely special guest. I'm here uh, at Gordon Murray Automotive with Professor Gordon Murray, CBE. Uh, And the reason I'm here is mainly to talk about the extraordinary new T50 car that he has created, the car that I think everybody will regard as the the true successor to the F1. Gordon is, um, I'm sure all of you will know, designer of many championship winning Formula One cars for Brabham and for McLaren. Um, And Gordon, it's great to have you with you. Thank you very much for giving us your time. Um, I think today, given the time we have, we'll probably just keep to the road cars, if that's all right. And what we'll do is do a bit on the past, talk about the F1. Because um, that's a car, as I think you know, very special to my heart. And then, obviously, we'll spend a lot more time talking about the T50. Um, so, can I take you back to an airport departure lounge, Lenati, I think it was in 1988. Um, the MP44 had just failed to win the only race that year; it didn't win. And I think your flight was delayed, and talk turned to maybe doing a different sort of McLaren, the car that turned into the F1. Had that been something that had been on your mind for a great deal of time? You know, I, I've always wanted to do uh, a good sports car since I was racing in South Africa in the 60s, really. I grew up, I grew up in the 60s in that lovely era of uh, Italian and, and British with Lotus sports cars, you know, lovely shapes and sounds yeah. and everything. And I've always wanted, to, I've always harbored the desire to do a road car. I've dabbled in road cars. I did the Minbug in 71, the Midas Alpha in 81. But um, I, I, when I was at McLaren, I, I was thinking, you know, I was only signed up for three years. I said to Ron, under no circumstances will I do more than three years yeah. because 20 years in Formula 1 is enough for any human being. <laughs> and uh, I then, it, that's easy to say. Yeah. But, you know, how do you follow uh, Formula 1? Yeah. Uh, five World Championships, 50 Grand Prix wins, all that stuff. And all the excitement that, come, that comes with Formula 1, well, certainly in those days. And the freedom of design and all that stuff. And I thought, how the hell do you follow that? On the other side, I'm always looking for a new challenge, really. So um, I started thinking in, in my head, didn't mention it to anybody, that maybe, you know, McLaren would be interested in doing something we, better than Ferrari because yeah. we were beating them in Formula One. Yeah. Um, why not try and beat them on the road? Why do you have to go to, I think it was Mansour Auger said, why the hell do you have to go to Italy to buy a supercar? Yes. Yeah. And... Um, we got stuck, you're absolutely right, we got stuck at Lenate, the flight was late, and it was um, Ron Dennis, Mansour Auger, Crichton Brown and myself. And the one actually, I think, to first moot doing a car company uh, within the group was Mansour Auger. And it's something he said, he told me later, he confided in me later, that when they were sponsoring Williams, he was trying to push Williams into doing a supercar. So he'd, he'd had it in his head for a while, I'd had it in my head for a yeah. while. Crichton Brown was looking to do something with me. We got on very well. And uh, Ron wanted to expand the group, not just with the car company. Uh, that's about the same time we thought we, we needed an electronics company because electronics were beginning to take over in yeah. Formula One with telemetry and all that sort sure. of stuff on board. You know. 
diagnostics and stuff. And um, so Ron was looking to expand the group. I was looking for a new challenge. Yeah. Mansell OJ wanted to do a road cars, and yeah. Crichton just wanted to do something with me yeah. separately. Yeah. Um, he was quite happy to step out of Formula One and do whatever I was doing. So it sort of gelled. Uh, it, that was the, 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 the germ of the, okay. of the idea. But, but was like. the car itself, at least in its concept, already in your head at the time? Did you always have no. a vision of the kind of road car not you wanted to do? No, okay. not at Lenate. Once I knew it was going to be a reality, then my head went bananas. Yeah. You know, absolutely crazy. And the first thing I did before I got too carried away is I drove the current crop of supercars. Yeah. And, and there were a few around in those days. Uh, we, we borrowed a 959 uh, uh, F40. Yeah. Um, we borrowed an EB110, yeah. a Jag XJ220, yeah. and I had my NSX, which I know is not a supercar, yeah. but it was a really good ride and handling sure. compromise. So we had those five cars, and we spent days with them on the road and days with them on the track, in the dry and the wet. And what I did was I wrote down a list of things I didn't like. Yeah. So this was going to be an exorcism, if you like. <laughs> um, I wrote down, I mean, I already knew the things I did like. I loved driving Lotus Alans, you know, the, ste- the lightweight yeah. steering feel and, and all these stuff that comes with these little lightweight cars. Um, so I already knew the things I did want, but I needed to, dis- I needed to discover why supercars weren't that good to yeah. drive. Um, even if they had an exciting engine and they looked sexy, most mm. of them were absolute. You know, oh, we'd also tried a few older ones like the Countach oh, yeah, 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 yeah. and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. You know, and it was pretty clear that most of them were, were dreadful for different reasons, mm. actually. And just to give you a brief overview on that, uh, the F40 was the most fun yeah. and, and the best steering by yes. a mile. I yeah. mean, the, the F40 to me comes second after a load of Solan for steering feet. Yeah. But it was just a heap of rubbish. You know, it was just, I, I infamously said, and, and it got into print, that, you know, we couldn't make an F40 because I didn't have anybody that could weld that badly. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it was just, and the bolt stuck out the end of nuts by an inch. Yeah. And, you know, it, and, oh, God, it was dreadful. Yeah. The nice thing about the F40, it had great character. Yes. It had a lovely steering. Yeah. And they'd done a very clever thing. They hadn't over-turboed the engine. Yeah. So the NA bit, being a light motor car, mm. that you didn't feel the lag as much no. as you did on EB110, for example. Yeah. And uh, so I took from the F40 the, the driver feedback yeah. and the driver experience with the noise and, and the, the rawness, if you like. That's what I took from that. The EB110 was just rubbish, full stop. Yeah. I mean, everything about it. Yeah. It, was, it had no torque below 5.5. Five. Yes. It had the biggest turbo lag I've ever felt in my life. Yes. You know, you had to change down. It was a bit like a 600cc motorbike. You had to change down three gears to overtake a car <laughs> on the road. You know, it was useless. Yeah. Or sit at 5.5. Five. And I didn't like the feel of the car. Yeah. It, it felt heavy and boxy. and that, So that was out the window. The Jag 220 was a joke. I mean, yeah. it was a sexy-looking thing. Yeah. Really nice-looking car. But it was huge. Yes. And the scuttle height, I mean, I'm 6'4". Yeah. I got into it for the first time, and it was like a Countach. The scuttle height was up here, and I thought, it feels like you're in your dad's car. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's letterbox window. Yeah. No luggage space. Packaging. And the doors that barely opened as well. Yeah, you hardly yeah, get in the, the thing. The, the packaging was yeah. dreadful. Yeah. You know? And I, I, car design, to me, is packaging. Yeah. So that went out the window. Uh, the 959 was amazing on the track in the wet, it, it, with its little bit of drive to the front wheels and stuff. But actually, when you stop and looked at the car, it's just not special enough. You know, mm. it's a 911 shell yeah, with a fiberglass front and back end on yeah. it, <laughs> and, and you know that shows. Yeah. It really shows. It was a cheap way of making a supercar. You know, um, and I wanted something bespoke. I didn't want to modify anything or carry over anything. So. That went out the window. The NSX, uh, we decided that would be the benchmark for ride and handling at least. Yeah. If nothing else, yeah. it would be ride and handling. But the other thing I took from the NSX, it had a very low scuttle height because they'd very cleverly taken the air conditioning out of the dashboard and put it in the front boot area. And I copied it that. just dropped everything down. Yeah, it yeah. was four inches lower than all the other cars. Yeah. And I copied that. We went two inches lower again, which is why the F1 always feels like PlayStation when you're sitting in front of it. You can see the road six feet in front of the yeah. car. You know. And that is something actually the McLaren has maintained to this day, isn't Good. it? It's taken that, yeah, yeah. and you drive a modern McLaren, and yeah. you get in there, and it feels like, almost like you're in a goldfish bowl. You can just yeah. see everything. Yeah. I mean, compared to modern Lamborghinis, where you're just like this, and you can't see a thing. So that was my starting point. Yeah. 
Um, and, then, and then I decided, right, you know, that's all the stuff we don't want to have. The sitting in the middle came from lots of different areas. I, I had done that layout in a sketchbook at college in South Africa in 1969. <laughs> I had drawn a three-seater because I was racing car mad. You know, yeah. all, all my exercise books had pictures of suspension and yeah. 60s racing cars and sports yeah. cars, Lamore cars and stuff. And in the middle of all that was this layout, which I'd forgotten about. And that was still the sort of the arrowhead, so the driver, yep. for not only driver. in the middle, but further forward as yes, well. Yes, that's yeah. right. That's right. Um, so that was, the, I suppose, where it started, but i sort of forgotten about that. Where it really started was um, how do you get rid of pedal offsets? How do you make the driving experience very special? This is going to be the world's most expensive car, probably. Yes. Um, how do you make it different, and how do you make, the owner and the driver feel just so special and we're a Formula 1 team yes so everything pointed to a central driving position Mm. and for a a moment for a mad moment it was going to be a single seater (laughs) and then I thought that's probably going to limit the market a bit and then I dragged out the the notebook with the arrowhead tucking the people in and I started developing that with seating bucks and stuff did, did, did anybody resist it? Did anybody go, you're crazy? Um, no one, uh, you won't be able I to get think, into it? Or? Yes. I think, um, I, I think there was hesitation yeah. from um, Ron, definitely. Yeah. Um, Mansell was good, up for anything. Mansell's yeah. a fantastic guy. And yeah. He's just up for anything, you know. And uh, Crichton was, yeah, it sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ron was a bit hesitant, I think, because it was a bit radical. Yeah. You know? But once we all got used to the idea, I, I, did, I did pages and pages of handwritten notes. That actually, they were in the book, Driving Ambition, yeah. which I gave to everybody and said, that's what we're going to do. Yeah. And here's the sketch of the car. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the other funny story around then was the name, because we all met at Mansell's flat in London, and we thought, right, let's have a brainstorm. What are we going to call this thing? And, and we pushed all sorts of things. Around. Can you remember any of the other names? I can't, unfortunately. But they were pretty long-winded yeah. and not too terribly suitable. And I said, we're a Formula One team. What about F1? And we'll be 39 steps ahead of an F40. <laughs> and everybody laughed. And Ron said, uh, Ron said, no, 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 no. Let's, let's take it away. And we'll, I'm sure we can come up with something better than that. So we all disappeared, and then weeks later we re-met in the same flat. And I said to everybody, right, suggestions please, and nobody had anything better, so it just became the F1. It just became the F1? Yeah. Wow. And you made this extraordinary car, but I can remember when people started to want to race it, because you never designed it as a racing car, did you? No, not at all. And I can remember you saying to me at the time, if I'd intended it to be a racing car, I'd have done it differently. Um... So why did you not expect anybody to race it? Because, I mean, because at the time the BPR was getting going and people were starting to race 911s and F40s and even well, Bugattis. It, when I started the car was 1990. I, yeah. I, I never heard of BPR. No, of course. And, yeah, and, uh, yeah I, I never had any intention no. of, of racing it. And I actually remember saying to the other directors, the three guys, don't ask me to do a racing car because I'll compromise the thing. Yeah. You know, just let me do a road car. And, and Mansour famously said, it needs to be the sort of car you can jump in and drive to the south of France yeah. comfortably. Yeah. You know, and everything has to work. And I don't do stiffly sprung cars. My, the natural frequency I start with is usually 10, 15% lighter than probably even the average German road car. Yeah. You know, I, like, I like softly sprung cars, Absolutely. comfortable cars. Yeah. Which is why, if you took the F1 to the track, it felt a bit rolly. Yeah. You know? And when we did the LM, we, we, we fixed that. We, yeah. we made it more of a track car. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we, we just set, I just set out to do the best car I could and find a team. I, mean, I walked into an empty bin and talk about fairy story. You know, not only was I given the, uh, the go-ahead to start the car company and do the first car, but I got to uh, lay out the building, pick the plants, the pictures on the wall, <laughs> the tiles for the floor, yeah. all the carpets. I designed the layout, the furniture, everything. Yeah. Um, and then it was like, okay, and now I get to pick the team. Mm. Because at that time it was, it was Crichton, myself, and a part-time secretary. That was it, in an empty concrete building. So I got to pick the team, and I found, I found a rarely young team to do that. Um, 
relatively inexperienced, all very young people, yeah. uh, and, and they grew with the program. You know, it was great. The only sort of slightly older one was Peter, but even then, Peter Stevens, but yeah. even then, I didn't want a stylist. I interviewed a couple of people, and they did. I thought, I'm never going to get on with these. I know what I want. I'm never going to get on with these people. Yeah. So I went to see Peter, and I said, um, I had a beer up in his place in London, and uh, I, I said to him, um, have you got a really bright graduate? You know, I know what I want, but I can't draw chrome and I know nothing about clay modelling and stuff. Yeah. I, have you got a really bright graduate from, because he was with the Royal College of Yeah, Art, of course, yeah. And uh, he said, why, what are you doing? So I told him, he said, I want the job. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Peter came on board and he was very good, you know. Um, I got what I wanted. Uh, I got exactly what I wanted. There are a few things that, you know, in, when I look at the F1 now, I don't like. Mm. But thank God we've had a second crack at it, so I've fixed those. Yeah. Gosh. Uh, and it, it, it is, by legend, a car that was designed without a budget. Is that true? Was it, did no, you... absolutely not. No. So, so... Absolutely not. There was no budget for the sales price. That's the important thing. Okay. So there was no holding back on, we need to make that switch. We need to make our own instrument panel. What, nine and a half grand for an instrument stack? Yep, because that's, it's going to be all machine from solid and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But there was a hugely tight budget for... Um, I went over, we had 8 million quid to do the car. Wow. Um, the engine was outside that, of yes, course. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, we had 8 million quid, and I, and I overran by half a million. Um, so when we got to the first running car, it was 8.5 million. But that included kitting out the building yeah. and buying all the equipment okay. and production wow. equipment. It seems unimaginable now, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, and I think the overall program, by the time we got into production with Shelford and the, all the production facilities, yeah. was 21 million um, total budget. So we were very tight on that budget, but we were we had no budget for the sales price at all. Yeah. Okay. Um, and obviously, yeah, you didn't make as many as was originally intended. Was it just a case of the right car being launched at absolutely the wrong time in an um, economic cycle? I think cycle? it was a combination of things, actually. Um, first of all, we had no idea. It was the world's first million-dollar car yeah. with the exchange rate as it was there. Yeah. And we had no idea how many multi-millionaires or billionaires there were in the world that would want to buy a million-dollar car for a start. Secondly, it was such an extreme motor car in itself, being central driving position and that fast. Yeah. We didn't know how many people could handle that or would want to try and handle that. Yeah. And then thirdly, we, were, we launched it bang on the 87, 88 uh, world recession. Yeah. So yes. <laughs> we had this combination uh, against us, you know. Um, the thing that's been widely misquoted is that we said we'll make 350 cars or yeah. 300 cars. 300, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what I thought. That's absolutely yeah. not true. Okay. What we had was um, we had about 500 people expressed interest in the car when we first announced it as soon as we announced it, the 50 grand deposit and we didn't know what the sales price was going to be at that point yeah. about you know 450 of them disappeared <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know it was friends and family wasn't it we're going to do this fantastic car do you want to put your name down oh yes please yeah, can we have 50 grand please ah uh, uh, yeah. maybe not um, so a lot of them disappeared but some of them uh, stayed on and, and bought the car but almost to a person they came to us and said how many are you going to make because if this car we said to them it's going to be in the hundreds of thousands it's probably going to be north of half a million yeah you know? um, and they said well that's all very well but how many and we said we're going to make as many as we can yeah. and they went that's not good enough yeah you have to put in the contract a limited number uh, like Ferrari said, four, 400 F40s. Yeah. They made over 1,000, didn't they? They made 1,300. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but I'd never do that. No, no of course not. I would never do that. And uh, the, so we said, okay. So we had a board meeting, the four of us. We had a board meeting and we said, how many, how many people are out there? We don't, how many can we make? You know, We really ideally want to make about one, to start making some money around about the 100 mark. Yeah. And... 150 would be nice and we make some profit and, mm. you know um, and uh, we said we don't want to put it too low because what happens if you know people drive the car and they love it and after the recession people start giving loads, up yeah. so we th we said 
middle ground, 300. Yeah. Ferrari made 400 F40s. They said they were going to make 400 F40s. The Jag XJ220, I can't remember how many they were going to make, but it was. we looked at everybody's. They ended up making 270, but I think yeah. they were going to make more than that. I think they, they were. They just didn't make as many as... I think as, it was 500 yeah, or exactly. something. So we said, right, what about 300? Yeah. So we went back to everybody. If he said, if we put in the contract, we'll never make more than 300 cars. Break the mold. Yeah. yeah. They went, oh, that's fine. And that's why we put 300 in. It wasn't the fact we, th- we knew we were going to make 300 or thought we could make 300. Yeah. We put it in for the customers. Okay. And, but, w- but to be honest, when we got to around whatever it is, 65, 70 or whatever it was, road cars, yeah. by then the racing had started. Yes. And that looked far more lucrative. Yeah. And actually, we weren't making money on the road cars then. No, I'm sure. Um, so in the end, it started off as a commercial, potentially a commercial disaster. It ended up a fantastic commercial success because um, what price do you put on winning Le Mans for a brand? Well, exactly. I mean, how, how much? Yeah. We made a profit every year on the racing cars of yeah. a few million quid. Yeah. And then we won Le Mans and, and two world championships. So, I mean, what, what's that worth to a brand? You can't put a number on no. it. And, of course, that won us... Um, the SLR contract, which was, I think, over 300 million euros. So, in the end, it turned into a profit-making company. Of course. Because of the F1. Because of the F1. Although the direct sales weren't a success of the road cars. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, I, I said we wouldn't talk about racing, um, and we won't, but I, I can't leave the F1 without at least talking about Le Mans 95 and asking you, where in all the achievements that you had with your with the McLarens and with the Brabham's in Formula One, where that particular event becoming the what was the first manufacturer since Ferrari in fact the only manufacturer with Ferrari to win Le Mans first time out oh did they well it wasn't it wasn't even a works entry so there was a private Ferrari which won Le Mans in 49 okay and that was the first okay, time a Ferrari had raced Le Mans I didn't know that okay. but it wasn't it, it, it was Luigi Canetti's car so it wasn't a yeah. factory car yeah but certainly as, as a factory team uh, well we didn't have a factory team so we, that doesn't count no, but but the car that won was your car, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, we we lent it. To, yeah. it wasn't run by us. It was run by uh, uh, Paul Anzante, yeah, who'd never been to Le Mans before, didn't even know where it was. <laughs> and uh, we we offered engineering support, but it wasn't factory run. Absolutely yeah. not. None of the cars were. They were yes. all privateers, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, that to answer your question, that is absolutely the up there for me as the number one yeah yeah i think it's much harder to win Mans than it is to win a world championship in formula one personally you know it's a hell of a race to just finish yeah and nowadays it's a lot easier because you can change parts but in the old days you couldn't when when i first went down 72 you couldn't change a gearbox yeah you weren't allowed to add water during the race they sealed the water system um it was a real endurance race. And then, of course, they relaxed all that. And you could change the whole rear end and gearboxes and stuff. Yeah. And it became less of an endurance race. Sure. Um, so I think, I think that is the... To go there with a road car, yeah. first time, and not just win it, with a GT car as well, yeah. but not just win it, but to dominate it. Yeah. When there were prototypes in the race, it wasn't like, you know, in the old days where it was there, there weren't prototypes. Yeah. You know, the GTs, when Ferrari won it, they were... I don't think there were prototypes in 49. No, no, absolutely not. No, no. No. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, it's up there for me. It's right up there. Yeah. And you, had some, you, you also had the problem. You had, you had some, I guess everybody had some weather that year, but it was a, it was a horrible Le Mans, wasn't it? In yes. terms of it just rained and rained and rained. Yeah, I mean, that really counted against us because yeah. um, the only way we could do a quick lap time was to run the minimum downforce on the yeah. thing. And, and the drivers in the dry were saying the thing's a bit floaty. Yeah, I said, well, you've got a choice. We can dump more downforce on, but you won't do the lap time. Because yeah. we'd done many, many simulated laps. We'd already done a 24-hour test at um, French Circuit. Is it Monterey or somewhere? Somewhere like that. Uh, we'd already done 24 hours to make sure the car would finish uh, from, a, from a durability point of view, and that was fine. But the only time we could go, the only way we could go quickly was to back the downforce off and off and off. Yeah. So we were doing 225 miles an hour in the, on the straight, quicker than the prototypes. Yeah. And then, of course, they were quicker than us in the corners. Yes. But overall, we, we edged into their, their lead. And that was fine in the dry. But in the wet, it must have been a nightmare. Well, the, I spoke to the drivers and they all said it was... Uh, you speak to Derek Bell, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I spoke to JJ about it quite and, recently. And JJ, yeah. yeah. And, and they, they would talk about tippy-toe, skipping from puddle to puddle, yeah. you know. 
And I was tempted to put more downforce on, but then, of course, the lap time would come down again. So if it had been dry, we would have had a much easier crack at the wind. But the car was a nightmare. It was only JJ's driving. Which was extraordinary. In the night, in the wet, that actually put the car where it was. Because all the other cars should have won. Yes. The one, the one that really should have won was Derek's. The Harrods car. Harrods car was yeah. just way ahead. The yeah. whole the team and everything. But unfortunately, that team modified their clutch mechanisms just before the race, okay. the week before the race. Yeah. And both of them had clutch problems. Yeah. Uh, okay. I didn't know They that. put a different throw out. Their yeah. engineer said, because we had an external slave cylinder, because I was worried about the carbon clutch getting too hot, so that the F1 has an external, like an old-fashioned car, yeah. with a fork going down. Yeah. And um, they had a race engineer who, you know, racing cars all use direct push bearings on the clutch. And I, I said to him, don't do it, you know, because we have no idea with the carbon clutch. 24 hours, all the dust and the heat and stuff. And they modified them. And they're both jammed. And that was that. Cost so them that. all the time. Because those are the cars that should have won. Yeah, sure. Easily. Yeah. Whereas the Lanzanti car was quite slow. Um, they were doing one lap less on the fuel because Paul was worried about the thing running out of fuel. So other people were doing 13 laps, they were doing 12. Yeah. And they were miles back, yeah. you know, until JJ got in at night time and pulled, and pulled that deficit back. Yeah, again. I can remember there was, there was a time when he was 17 seconds a lap quicker than anybody else yeah. on the circuit. Yeah. Which is, I know it's quite a long <laughs> lap, but even so, that's quite a lot of time. Right, um, I'm talking of time. I'm mindful of, of running out of it. So I think we just need to move on a little bit. Can we just talk very briefly? So you went from the F1, which is absolutely your project, your show, and you entirely, to doing the, what do they call it? The Mercedes-Benz AMG SLR McLaren. McLaren was like right on the end, wasn't mm, it? Yeah. Um, 1800 kilo car. Not the sort of thing that I would imagine Gordon Murray waking up with a huge smile on his face in the morning, thinking about going and getting involved with. Was, was that a sort of a sort of thing that you had to do, or, or, or did you manage to find? Well, we were desperate there? to do something. Um, we were going to do another car with BMW, but when Ron signed a Formula One deal with Mercedes, yeah. BMW dropped us. We had an agreement to do Project Two, which was a much more affordable V8 engine car. Wow. 2 plus okay. 2. Yeah. Mid-rear engine 2 plus 2, okay. like, like a 308 GT4. Yeah. Uh, would have been a lovely little thing. About 1,000 uh, cars a year. Did it have a name? Was that going to be the F2? Uh, or? It was just Project 2 at the, Project, at, yeah. at, at the time. Yeah. Um, and we got, we got the thumbs up on the QT through Russia and uh, Karl-Heinz Karpfeld. That, yeah. The board had signed off the program. Yeah. And then Ron signed a five-year contract with Mercedes for engines. Yes. And they dropped us like a hot potato. As they w- always were going of to. Of course they were. Yeah. yeah, they were always going to do that. So that was the end of that. So I was desperate for work for the car company. And um, Mercedes were our new partner. So I put forward a Project 5, which was a lovely little, using their AMG V8, yeah. a lovely little mid-rear engine thing, um, about uh, 1,100 kilos, 1,200 kilos, I think it was, a little two-seater sports car, much more affordable. Yeah. You, know, you could make... Uh, we got the construction so you could make about 1000 1500 a year and uh, heard nothing for three months. Then they came back and they said, the bad news is we don't want to do that car. The good news is we've got a job for you. We've just had this show car called the Vision SLR yeah. and everybody loves it and we want you to turn it into a real car. But um, So that's how that started. And if I look back on the SLR program, I'm very proud of the engineering, the chassis, carbon crash structures front and rear, yes. um, the torsional rigidity and the weight of the chassis and the, and the production methodology we evolved and developed to build 700 cars a year, you know, um, was phenomenal. That side, I'm still, it, it stands alone to me as a program for that productionization of carbon fiber yeah. and how we robot bonded them together and stuff. That bit is brilliant. But the car has a massive identity crisis. You know, the engine turned out to be 85 kilos too heavy when we first got it. It was supposed to be a 1450 kilo car. Ended yeah. up 1680, okay. yeah, um, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and everything that arrived was just too heavy. Five-speed automatic gearbox yeah, too. Yeah, and there were, I, I got into that. I got into the hydraulics and opened and ported it yeah. to make the gear change a bit quicker, but yeah. it was still slushy. Yeah. Know? And worse than that, we had, they had seven layers of management in those days yeah. in Damon Chrysler. 
I think they've skipped a couple now, but they had seven layers. And there were committees and board members getting involved. And they had too many people in styling. And, and the aerodynamics we had to completely redo because the car, as, a, as, a, as the show car, the aerodynamics were really bad. You know, the thing had no downforce at all. So we had to modify all that. I had to push the exhaust out the side to get a flat bottom to get ground. It was the world's first ground, front, front engine ground effect car. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the end, it had a complete identity crisis, and it doesn't know what it wants to do. As it turns out, as a sort of cross-continent th- uh, sort of cruiser, yeah. it's probably fine. Yeah, but it was. Yeah. I never really liked the styling. Uh, it's not me. Um, I do quite like the styling. Yeah, it's got great road presence. Yeah. But it, that styling is just too fancy for me. Yeah. I, I did draw a style in the early days of a much cleaner one that looked a little bit more like the old SLR. Yeah. And in fact, that's what they, they hadn't seen it, so they, they did it on, on for their own back. But that's what A&G did when they followed it with the SLS. Yes. They cleaned yeah. it up and yeah. made it look, and that's what I drew, yeah. actually. Okay, that's a much yeah. better looking car. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, so I look back on that as a lesson, really. Yeah. And you, you will never get, and this is really important, and it's relative to what we're doing today with T50, I've come to the conclusion you will never, ever get an iconic motor car. And by iconic, I don't just mean the way it looks, mm. but the driving experience, the purity of all the components in the design, if it's a committee design. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. If you, even the little cars, if you look at the Mini with Isigonus, the, the Cinquecento with Dante Giacosa, yeah. those were one person's vision. Yeah. You know? And they turned out to be these pure, simple, mm. pure little designs. Whereas the SLR, everybody was poking their finger in, you yeah. know, and it didn't know whether it wanted to be a sports car or a GT car yeah. or a, a limousine or a yeah. whatever. You okay. Know. So let's uh, let's turn to the T50, which I've I've just um, had a look at. If you go to Drive Nation's Instagram page, you can see the photographs of it. You will, I hope, agree with me that it is an extraordinary looking thing. Um, is it correct to look at the T50 as? the true successor to the F1? Is, is it in the way that you conceptualise it? Is it a modern F1? Or is it trying to do a slightly different job? No, it's a modern F1. Okay. Because, um, and the reason it is, when we got to 2017 and we had to celebrate 50 years of car design, we had a little exhibition, which was nice. Um, but, I, but that's when I announced the car company, because we've been talking for about a year, should we do one more car? And the only reason apart from celebrating 50. We could have done other things to celebrate 50 years. You know, we could have just made a one-off prototype and that had outrageous future technology or, yeah. well, I don't know. We could have done loads of things. But the reason why I turned into a limited-run supercar is because I've often looked back in the last decade, probably, looked back on the F1 and thought, seriously, why has nobody done another one? Mm-hmm. Seriously, yeah. you know. And that... There are plenty of cars out there, don't get me wrong, plenty of cars out there that are much more capable. Virtually every supercar out there now, apart from a few of the little handmade jobs, um, are much more capable than, than the F1 and faster. Yeah. But none of them, and I've driven all of them, yeah. none of them give you that instant shove in the back, that wonderful sound, the, the tactile feeling. It's a sense of, of occasion, controls. isn't it? It's, it's, yes, it's sitting in the middle. Yes, it's lightweight, and yes, it's naturally aspirated V12, but it goes way beyond that. Yeah. There's a lot of subtleties and nuances with an F1 experience that you, you're aware of subconsciously, and they all add up to be something very special that you don't get in these modern cars. You know, um, Second gear out of Goodwood chicane, I mean, the cars are blindingly quick, but none of them, none of them. The only one that was similar was a Noble 600. Yeah. That gave me a bit of a shove in the back when yeah. I opened the throttle. Not, not a snappy shove yeah. like the F1, but quite a shove. Yeah. Whereas all the other heavy turbo cars, you can count to one, you know, yeah. and then the express train takes over. Yeah. But it doesn't give you that light up sound and feel. And so I thought either people, I don't know, either people didn't understand the formula mm-hmm. in its entirety, yeah. or they did. But because they worked for an organization that had layers and committees, they couldn't actually produce a, another, a modern F1. Or if they were a small organization like Pagani or Koenigsegg, 
they were using carryover engines yeah. and turbochargers. Yeah. And you're never going to, it's never going to happen, you know, not in a million years. It has to be t 10 or 12 cylinders and it has to be normally aspirated. Yeah. Yeah. So, so can you just talk us through, I mean, what I find so fascinating about this car is all the stuff you're not talking about. You're not talking about 0 to 60 times, you're not talking about top speeds, you're not talking about Nürburgring lap times. You're just, the only thing that appears to matter to you is that this is a pure driver's car. And from, I'd just like to sort of hear from Gordon Murray's point of view, what, is, what are the most important things to deliver if you're doing that? How do you go about creating that car? Uh, you're right. I mean, I have no interest. I don't even know what the 0-60 time is. I have no interest in acceleration times or lap times. Um, no interest whatsoever. The car has to deliver the best driving experience in the world, number one. Yeah. And that includes everything. Engine, controls, everything. It has to be the best engineered car and the lightest car on the planet. And thirdly, and probably most importantly, it has to be a car that you'll want to use and jump back yeah. in. You know, get out. First of all, you get out and walk away. You want to turn around and have another look. Yeah. That's the first thing. So there's your styling. Yeah. And then the usability is very important to me too. The footprint, uh, the luggage stowage, the visibility, the ergonomics and stuff. And the tractability of the engine, that sort of thing. But then, you know, the first, first on the list is actually it has to be the best driving experience anybody's ever had. Yeah. In anything, old yes. or new. Yeah. Uh, and those are the three holy, that's the holy trinity, if you like. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I aim for. But it's interesting that to do that, although the car is obviously state-of-the-art in terms of its engineering, in terms of its philosophy, it's very traditional. Manual gearbox, yeah. normally aspirated engine, all the, you know, quite a small car. Um, so where's, there, where, where, where's the world going wrong? I, no, I, I don't think they are. I think people who are trying to sell four, 5,000 cars a year, six, 10,000 cars a year, yeah have to be focusing on turbos at least, yeah. if not hybrids and probably EV. Yeah. I just think at this stage, w one last great um, analogue supercar yeah. is room for a hundred of them. Yeah. You know, because my toolbox and my toy box are now vastly better and bigger than I had in 1989, 1990, yeah. when I started the F1 30 years ago. Um, if I tried to do this 15 years ago, it would have been a complete waste of time. I actually looked back 15 years. I didn't consider it 15 years ago, but I thought, why didn't I do this 10 years ago or 15 years ago? And I actually looked. I, I, I pulled up all the supercars from 15 years ago. Firstly, nobody had caught up to the F1 by, by yeah. then. Yeah. And secondly, there weren't enough advances in engines, uh, materials, systems, technology to make it a, a car that was... A, the next step. Yeah. All you would have made is a slightly better F1, and that's not what I want to do. Although this car, you're absolutely right, it's the spiritual successor. I truly believe this is as big a leap forward as the F1 was. Okay, and I reckon the, F the F1 was the single largest step yeah. that a car of that kind had taken. Yeah, so this takes, in a nutshell, this yeah. takes the F1 driving experience and every element of it, whether it's the quality of the switches on the small side, and the pedals and the controls and the steering wheel feel right up to the engine and the, and the quality of the gear change. Yeah. This is going to be the next step, you know, and there'll be nothing else like it. I, the thing I love about 50 is we've been very quiet about it so far because I don't like shouting about stuff until I know I can deliver it. And yeah. now we're heading for production in 18 months time. Yeah. Um, the thing I love about it, and I keep, when we have team meetings, you know, um, I say to the guys, isn't it exciting? You're all part, and I've got a fantastic team this time, the best team I've ever worked with. Yeah. Uh, much more experienced than I had with the F1 team. And I say to everybody, isn't it fantastic? You know, there's nobody else on the planet doing what we're doing. But not just doing exactly what we're doing. There's nobody on the planet doing anything close on weight. You know, we did an average weight of supercars now. It's 1,430 kilos yeah. is the average weight of a supercar. Um, everybody's having to resort to this massive power race to try and push one and a half tons along. And yeah. now we've got 900 horsepower, 1,000 horsepower, yeah. 1,500 horsepower. Yeah. And, of course, then you've got the awful spiral that the gearbox is bigger, the drive shafts are bigger, the brakes are bigger, the wheels are bigger. It gets heavier, heavier, heavier. You know. um, I wanted this to be a 3.3 litre to start with. That was my... I, I love the Ferraris, uh, the Ferrari V12, the 3-litre V12, 
from the 60s. The Colombo V12. Yeah. yeah. It's a gorgeous engine to yeah. drive. Yes. You know, and to look at. Yeah. And to listen to. Yes. It's just, and it's not just the GT, everybody thinks, oh, GTO, but it was in all the Ferraris. Yeah. You know. It was in the, they're racing cars all, in their standard road cars. Yeah. A lot of prototypes, everything. Beautiful little engine. Yeah. And I, I had this sort of romantic vision. Everybody else is going six, seven litres. Eight liters, you know, it's just it's just madness, yeah. complete madness. Especially today, when you're supposed to be making things greener and more efficient, you know. Yeah. Um, I'd like to do 3.3 liter, but we worked out we would have had to keep the car under 900 kilos to get the same push, yeah. or more push than okay. the F1. But even so, you um, now have a 3.9 liter engine. Well, it's four. Yeah, we yeah. Call, we call it 3.9. It's 3.994. Okay, mm. so a sub four liter engine producing more power. Yes. Than the F1 6.1 litre engine. Yeah. And torque lower down. And torque lower down. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, this is um, thanks to your friends at Cosworth, who have produced what, on paper, sounds like the most extraordinary power plant it's maybe just, to go... It's a new starting point for internal combustion engines. It really is. I mean, it's not just, well, it's slightly better than, than the Ferrari or slightly better than the Aston Martin V12. Yeah. You know, it's just a new starting point. It's, okay. it's mind boggling, the engine. Small, light, low. The center of gravity too, you know. The, the F1, if it had a handling fault, because I, I don't spring cars very stiffly, yeah. um, I always try and make the roll axis sympathetic to the centroid. And the centroid is, if you think about the car as a loaf of sliced bread, yeah. and each slice has its own centre of gravity. Yes. And of course it goes up and down a bit, but you draw a mean line sure. through. And on a mid-rear engine car, that's very steep. Mm -hmm. And if you drive something like a Lambo with a big heavy V12 yeah. in the back, no matter what they do with roll compensation measures, in transient handling like a chicane, you feel the back of the car wanting yeah. to fall over. Yeah. And the F1, on the limit, does that. Yeah. Um, and, of course, this engine is not only 65 kilos lighter. The 65 kilos lighter than the F1, F1 engine. Which was 40 kilos lighter than other V12s <laughs> at the time. This is about 100 kilos lighter than other people's V12s. Jeez. But the centre of gravity, when the F1 came out, the um, center, crank centre line above the sump was 125 mil, which is, I don't know how Russia did that. It's unheard of, yeah. you know. The current engines around then, the dry summer engines, were about 160, 170. This is 85 mil. Wow. <laughs> okay. So it's like, you know, the, the transient handling of this car will leave the F1 and a lot of other cars. It's, it's light anyway. Yeah. Um, the transient handling is going to just feel like something nobody else has ever experienced yeah. in a motor car. How, I mean, we were talking earlier, and you're clearly very proud of the fact that the car, basically almost everything on the car is British. Mm. Um, I think most people probably think you're a South African, but you're not, you're a Scot. Uh, well, going back a long way, yes. Yeah. Um, so what was, why was it important to you, um, given particularly that, for instance, you'd had such a great relationship with guys like Paul Rusher at BMW and so on, so why was it important to you that this was an entirely British project? I, I think, you know, we, we launched, you know, we, we say we've got the oldest badge in the world because the mermaid on the front of the of the car goes back to the 12th century it was my family crest yeah. in scotland but we're we're effectively we've got a 50 year old 53 year old brand yes but we're uh, we're a new company and we're launching gold murray automotive you know we launched it in 2017 in the uk yeah and we're we're a, we're often overlooked or, or understated uh country for yeah. technical innovation, you know, and I want to stand on top of the mountain and shout about it. Yeah. We, we have former Plex on the south coast doing our chassis and bodies, and they're a fantastic company to work with, extracting the transmission. Yes. Cosworth doing that, uh, doing the engine, Wipak doing the lights. You know, we've got, it's, it, it's a lovely thing to put your hand on your heart and say, this is, not only is this the best car in the world, it's a British car. Yeah. You know. Okay. The, just going back to the size of the engine, I, I've had a few people, not many, potential owners and owners come to me and say, but it's only four litre, you know. Um, is that going to be quick enough? <laughs> <laughs> and I point out to them that our powder weight ratio is better than a 918, a lot better than a 918 Porsche, a LaFerrari, a P1 McLaren, and a P1 GTR McLaren. Oh. We've got a better powder weight ratio. Okay. So if anybody thinks this isn't going to be quick, <laughs> a four-liter engine, they better reset, yeah. recalibrate. And it spins. This is a road car engine. Yeah. A four-liter road car engine that does 12,000 RPM. 
None of the DFEs you had in your Formula no. One cars ever did that. No, not at all. And here we're talking about an engine which presumably is going to have sensible service intervals. Absolutely. Will sit in heavy traffic and yep. do everything that you need to do. Yep. And fully homologated. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. It, it moves. I mean, this, this motor car and the engine just moves the game on. It is such a giant. It's not a little bit better yeah. than other people's cars and engines. You know, it's it's another planet. Yeah. I mean, you've driven lightweight cars. Yeah. Can you imagine a Lotus Elise? You know, something a little bit heavier than a Lotus Elise with a 660 horsepower V12 in the back, revving to 12. Yeah, I'd like to. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've talked about um, the timing of the car and how now was the time to do it because there was no point doing it 15 years ago because it would only have been a small step and clearly developments in all sorts of electronics and computers and metallurgians have helped it. I just wonder, because when I talk to a lot of the car designers these days, they actually say how much more difficult it is to design a car mm -hmm. today because of all the legislative hoops you've got to jump through. So what has been more difficult for you doing this car compared to I think the most difficult thing has been the weight target. Yeah. We've had to try. We have several mass track meetings every week, very open heart mass track meetings on every single nut and bolt washer on the yeah. car. And that, that's been the most difficult thing, um, to make sure it passes all the homologation, all the crash tests, and yeah. all the durability and everything else you've got to do these days, but still is 980 kilos. If it wasn't for... Do you think it will? Do you think you'll, you, do you think you'll get it in we're, under a ton? Yeah, we're, at the moment, um, we're, we're, we're declaring 986, yeah. which is where we are on the mass track, and we think we're going to hit that, yeah. Can you, are, are there any things, I mean, I can remember there are all sorts of funny things on the F1, which just showed um, your obsession with keeping the weight down, the amount of weight you got out of the exhaust system, the, 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 the music system I think you did with Kenwood was the smallest, lightest thing that they'd ever yeah, done. Yeah, it was 8.5 kilos, and yeah. the average system then was 16 kilos. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a water the modern day equivalent. Did, did the F1 well, have hollow carpet fibres? Or was that, is that, that an urban no, myth? No, no. We, we did... We did um, Skive the leather in half and say five and a half kilos for yeah. half thickness leather on the F1. But um, we're working with a British company, a fantastic British company, Arcam, top end yeah. high five. Yeah. And they haven't done a car system before. And they have been brilliant, you know, because when I said to them, our weight target for the whole system, they want 10 loudspeakers. Okay. The, the F1 had five. Yeah. Uh, they want 10 loudspeakers. And I said, the, the weight target six kilos. <laughs> They've come in at they've come in at four point three for everything. Yeah, a nominal seven hundred watts. The loudspeakers, the mounting system, the amplifiers, and the wiring four point three kilos. <laughs> yeah, there's a okay. success story for you. Yeah, that is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, so, can you just tell us where the car is now? What have you actually got? And and can you just sort of talk us through the the plan between now and uh, and job one? Sure. Yeah. So um, we're about to launch, which is really exciting. Yeah. We, we've kept. As I said earlier, we've kept very quiet. You know, I don't like shouting my mouth off before we got something finished. Yeah. So the car is now fully designed, and we're into tooling for yeah. the first prototypes. Um, we launch uh, the launch coming up on the fourth of August. Yeah. And the mule car. We have another mule car. This one's called George, because we had Edward and Albert, two kings, two British kings, yes. English kings. Yes. Uh, with the F1 for the SLR, we had German kings. We had Max, Otto, and Rudolf. <laughs> And this is George. Yeah. And George is an ultimate kit car again. And they're fantastic. They're still yeah. making them. They're, they're still making them. Because yeah. they are so clunky. Yeah. You know, the tubes are so big and so heavy, you can cut them about and weld bits in. And they are brilliant, you know, for that sort of thing. It's going to be ugly as sin. Um, that runs in exactly a month's time. Wow. You know, yeah. the engine ran on the dyno for the first time last week. Mm -hmm. uh, we start assembling XP1 and XP2 prototypes in September. And they run in October. And production is set for January 2022. And how many, how many prototypes will there be? Uh, there'll be 13. 13? Yeah. Gosh, that's, so that's a, that's a lot more that's, than you had. That answers your question about it's much more difficult these days because yeah. the homologation requirements, since we did the F1, now we've got ABS because you have to have it. Yeah. We've got ESP and traction control because you have to have it, but yeah. it's switchable. Yes. That is absolutely, there's no stages. You, it's on or off. <laughs> And I hope most people drive it with it off. Yeah. Well, unlike most people, we um, we we develop the car with nothing, so it's balanced, and then we just add ESP. Yeah. We don't we don't rely on it for for handling. So that's our program. 
So we've got a massive program with 13 prototypes over the next 18 months to do um, extensive testing. We do the same stuff OEMs do. We do you know, corrosion, cardio durability, hot, cold. Uh, we don't do the small company thing where we just make a few prototypes, run them around the block and sell them. <laughs> We've got a massive program. Yeah. You know. So it'll be a fully developed car. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Um, I didn't talk about the aero, which is crazy given how innovative and interesting the aero on this car is. Um, anybody looking at this car will notice a large fan sticking out the back and everybody will be thinking of that Brabham fan car. But you were explaining to me earlier, actually the concepts are are different, aren't they? Yes, they are. I mean, the the inspiration for putting the fan on the back instead of burying it, and, and I did try and bury the fan inside the engine cover to start with, which was just impossible with that size of fan, Yeah, um, is, is absolutely Bratton fan car. You know, it's, it's a bit of our heritage, if yes. you like. But the, but the functionality and what the fan does and how it does it has nothing to do with the fan car. The fan car was a blunt instrument. Yeah. It, was a, it was a vacuum cleaner <laughs> uh, with a bloody great big fan sucking yeah. up everything on the road. This doesn't do that at all. This is boundary layer control. And actually, this idea was 1991, and it's on the F1. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on which side of the fence you are, the F1 had so many firsts that it got overlooked. So, yeah. you know, first carbon car, first active aero, uh, setting in the middle, you know, yeah. lightest car, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it got overlooked. But the F1 had two small fans removing boundary layer from two tiny sections of the diffuser. And it gave us an increase in downforce of about 5% and a reduction in drag of about 2%. Mm. And it logged in the memory. We didn't have time to develop. I was stealing days from the Teddington Wind Tunnel, the Formula One Tunnel, so yeah. I didn't have much time. Sure. But we, two, we had two little model fans on the, on the scale model in the Wind Tunnel. And it worked, and it's logged in the memory. And I thought, if ever I do another supercar, uh, I'd like to use that technology, but over the full diffuser. And that's what we've done. And it's, it's pretty intelligent stuff. It's nothing like the fan car. It doesn't suck bits up off the ground. It just removes... Boundary so there. it's not going to be throwing anything out the back? No, no. no. Although we have had one owner ask if we could have smoke coming out the back. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, it, it's, no it's, it's much more sophisticated. And it gives the driver control. There's, there's six modes and four of them are driver selectable. Yeah. Um, and when it's acting on its own or under driver control, it's, it's interactive with the top and bottom surface of the car, and it decides where it should be. The algorithms that we're writing, well, over a certain speed it won't do this, and under a certain speed it won't do that, yeah. and under these conditions it does that. But the, the, the effect with the fan is that we can, we can get interactive aero at much lower speeds, and we can dump down force at higher speeds, sure. create a virtual long-tail motor car with yeah. the fan. Um, so it's got some funky stuff. And do you know what sort of, in numbers terms, what sort of downforce it's going to be capable of generating? Yeah, those? so we, we, we're talking percentages. Um, I'm not a fan of numbers. It, it's, not, it's not a car like the Valkyrie that will produce tons of downforce sure. because it's pointless on a road car, yeah. to be honest. Um, but the F1, on the other hand, didn't really make enough. It, it had very little downforce, yeah. just enough to keep it stable. Yes. I think it was about 50 kilos, yeah. 150 miles an hour, yeah. because I knew at 240 we, we'd have no suspension left if we had anything more. <laughs> yes. uh, on the other hand, this makes much more than the F1, but not ridiculous numbers. Yeah. But okay. importantly, the high downforce gives us 50, instantly 50% 50 more downforce right. than standard. Sure. And under braking, we double the downforce. Which means from 150 miles an hour, you stop 10 meters shorter. Wow. And that uses the foils and the fan mm. working together. Yeah. And we get 100. Our target was about 70%, but actually we've turned out with 100% more downforce under braking. And 100 road cars and then 25 track cars. Track cars, yeah. What can you tell us about the track car and how the different? Track, the track car will be much more hardcore. I'm, I'm hoping... The people, one of the reasons we're doing a few track cars is I'm hoping, this car, the styling is so pure. I'm hoping people aren't going to ask us for high downforce kits. And, you know, with the F1, when they saw the LM, I built five LMs. Yeah. People then started retrofitting the, high, the wings and the, the front splitters and things yeah. to road cars, yeah. which I think was a shame, yeah. to be honest. Uh, they look fine, but, you know, 
This car is so pure, yeah. and I think much prettier than the F1. Yeah. We call it a return to beauty. We <laughs> might it seems to fight against this, this war that OEMs are in now. We're trying to make the next car more outrageous, yes. more holes, more ducts, yeah. whatever. This is the antithesis of that, really. And um, so with the track car, that's going to be outrageous. I'm, going to, I'm having a lot of fun, actually, with that. That's going to be more GTR than LM. Right. So, and we're looking but, but, seriously. Um, we're talking to Stefan Rattel. I've talked to the ACO and, and uh, the FIA, but they seem to be in a bit of a mess as to where GTs and supercars go. Yeah. Um, but Stefan Rattel runs, I think, 90% of the world's GT races yes. anyway. And, and we, we're talking to him about perhaps another Pro-Am series like BPR again. Which would be fantastic, you know. Yeah. So that's where we're sort of heading with the track car. So if somebody wants something more outrageous, get one of those. We've had a few people buy both. Wow. They okay. pre-ordered. Yeah. They don't even know what the track car is yet, but they pre-ordered a track will, car. Will the powertrain stay essentially? So no, presumably you'll have to have no, panels. And... It's, it's a different... Um, it's over 700 horsepower, that one. Okay. Wow. It doesn't have cats and things, obviously. No, sure. Yeah. Um, and it'll have a sequential... Shift, presumably. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And even lighter? Uh, 890. 890? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, and the road car, you've still got navigation, you've got entertainment, yep. you've got Everything you air conditioning. and phone. Yeah. We looked at doing our own entertainment system, but we also looked at the mistakes other companies have made. Yeah. And generally, you can spend a couple of million without blinking yes. on an entertainment system, uh, two or three million. And then by the time you produce the car, it's partially out of date or the control system is a bit clunky and people aren't used to it and they're used to this one with this touch thing yeah. and uh, the other thing is I didn't want touch screens yes so we've uh, we've operate we we've still built our own system but it operates from your phone whatever yeah. phone you've got yeah so you're used to the mode of operation from your phone and yeah. it's a wireless connection okay um, and we think that will, you know, it, but the fact that it'll update itself is a more sensible way to go. Indeed. Yeah. Um, so 100 cars, 2.36 million yep. each yep. before tax. Yep. Are there any left? Not well, that I'm about to be, well, I'm sorry, we, be, the, not be able to give you my yeah, order just yet. But. <laughs> Here's an interesting thing, because we all sat down at uh, the end of 2018, yeah. and, and the, the board of directors and the shareholders, you know, we all sat down and we said, they said to me, do you think we're going to pre-sell any? Because I said, I don't expect teasers and, and things that we can't deliver. Yeah. You know, we're not showing anything until we know the car's going to be like that. Okay, fine, we, we, we're with you. But do you think we'll pre-sell any? And I said, yeah, sure. I mean, I know people that sold F1s too early, uh, people that own an F1, but they're too, they're too precious now to drive. Yeah. Um, and probably a few people I know that missed out on the F1. Yeah. I said... 10, 12 cars, maybe, Yeah, you know? And they went, well, that'd be good. Yeah. And unbelievably, uh, we've sold more than two, we pre-sold more than two-thirds people paid up. Uh, and we haven't shown the car yet. And the first 50 <laughs> yeah. were sold on my ballpoint sketch and a description, which I find unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. If we got 10, I would have been happy. But, yeah, the majority are pre-sold. Wonderful. Which is great, you know? And so I guess this is the first car from Gordon Murray Automotive. Mm. Is there going to be another? Are you not going to stop? Oh yeah, now? sure. I oh, know. No, we're building production facilities and stuff. We're not. You know, we're not stopping. So but there'll never be another one of these. Okay. This is the halo. This is the, this is my F1. Okay. In a number. So this will be the halo car. Um, I have to say, when McLaren announced the Speedtail, I did get the team together and say, I think. We, it was early days for us then. We were talking about doing another three-seater. And yeah. when they announced it, I, I, I said, if they do one, they're surrounded by F1s, you know. Um, we shouldn't. We really shouldn't. But then they showed the Speedtail, and we were back on again. Because, of course, by their own admission, I think it was Rob said in one of the magazines, he said the only thing that has in common with an F1 is the central driving position yes. and three-seater. Yeah. He said it's not meant to be no. a new F1, no. which is great, yeah. because this one is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful well Gordon thank you so much for your time really appreciate it um, the car looks fantastic and uh, yeah, I just wish you 
All the very best for that. Well, it's great to catch up with you again. It's after, been a while. Uh, after a while, yeah. I expect we'll see, see, be seeing a bit more of each other over the, uh, the months and years I really ago. hope so, and I can't wait for you to drive the car. Yeah, nor me. Thanks, Gordon. Cheers, bye-bye. Um, so that's the end of this particular podcast. Uh, please remember to rate, like, and subscribe it. Um, and if you'd like to give us some money, you can always do that through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash drive nation. Uh, Gordon Murray, thank you again. And uh, Dan and I will catch up with you all again this time next week. Bye-bye. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel.